Welcome to the Daily Path Podcast, where it's all about building an authentic life and business. I'm your host, Joe Winters Jr., and now for today's message. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Daily Path Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Winters Jr., and today I am joined by Patrick McAndrew. He is the founder of Hara where they coach financial insurance sales teams and financial advisory practices on growing their business by improving how they manage their attention. They have worked with organizations like Lincoln Financial Group, Pacific Life, Equitable, and more. Patrick, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, Joe. No doubt. It's a pleasure to have you. So today, I would like to talk to you about what you do at Hara, your process for acquiring clients, and how you got to where you are today. So before we jump into what you do at Harvard, let's start off with the early days. What drew you to coaching and the world of personal development? So what drew me actually into it was a, a speed reading course that I took back in 2018. Um, I was working in sales. I was working in software sales. I was the um, head of sales for uh, events management software for wedding venues. And I took this speed reading course and it was it was a game changer. It was four hours, but I think I learned more in those four hours than I did in the four years that I spent studying law. Part of that was because mm-hmm. I, I didn't have a huge interest in my time while I was studying law. But in these four hours, I was completely engrossed and engaged. And I came out of there with a, a complete shift in my mindset and understanding of how of how intelligence works and of how the brain works and, and, and questioned why did I not learn these things before in life? And why did I live for so long with this, this view and this mindset of myself that I was a bad reader? I, I wasn't a bad reader. I just wasn't given the range of tools. Mm. And that led me to explore so many things, which now opened up a world. It made reading a curious act. It meant that it had so much range and stuff to offer that I could experiment. I could now start looking at trying to read books that I previously thought were too complex or difficult. It Mm. now became interesting to see if they really were. Mm. Um, Tried reading books at different speeds, some very slow, some faster, depending on the material. Um, Played games with trying to manage my memory and understand how to hold information. Uh, and then I started working for the organization on the side. So that was my first experience to actually coaching. And, and a lot of my work came was was in the financial industry. So mm. a lot of it was with investment banks and hedge funds. I also went mm. to some high schools and colleges, but uh, th- that was the primary industry that we focused on. And um, yeah, that just opened me up to a, a super interesting world of, of connecting and spending time with people who wanted to progress further and develop themselves. Wow, that's interesting. So what about the reading course made that the case? Like were y'all covering personal development content or not so much? And it was just after the fact you fell in love with reading. And so that's how you started reading personal development content. Like walk me through that. So, you know, let's let's look at a, a mindset that I had, which a lot of people share. I, I had books okay. that I really wanted to read. But their presence in my apartment was almost an indicator of my failed attempt at reading them. Mm. I had read one or two or three chapters, but I hadn't finished it. And somebody would say, oh, did you read that book? I tried, but I didn't finish it. You know, and in an unconscious pattern, this becomes a reinforced mechanism that I'd like to read or I'd like to consider myself able to read, but I can't focus. I can't stick at it. And I can't remember things. You know, that's another thing I would, I don't know if I said that so much myself, but that's something I hear a lot from people. Yeah, I like to read, but I can never really hold the information. I can never actually explain it afterwards. It just like comes in and goes out. And 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 these are things that I hear from a lot of people. I, I like to read, but I, I keep losing focus all the time. I'll read like half a page and then I'll forget that I was reading because I'll get lost in my own head. And then I have to go back. And if I have to do that more than twice, I get frustrated and then I put the book down. Or I pick something up and Google it, and then I'm down a rabbit hole on my phone, and I'm no longer reading. So these are patterns, and these are things that happen a lot when we read. And this course explained why these things happen, that there are old reading habits, because something that's so fascinating, if you think about it, Joe, is that we learn how to read when we're, let's say, three, four, five. Right. We never learn again, yet it becomes an embedded tool 
mm. and technique that we use in all aspects of our lives. And the material and the complexity grows exponentially, yet the basis of our skill is sustained at that level. Of course, it improves. I mean, it improves, but the habits are still, the old habits have still been taken from that time. Um, so this started to reveal things to me. It started to reveal that, well, as I said, I wasn't a bad reader. I just I just had poor technique. I had poor habits. So some simple habits is the, the habit of, well, first of all, a really simple one, the concept of needing to read a book from cover to cover to finish it. Mm. It's not really the case. Just read for what's necessary. Discover mm, the book. Play with the book. Right, you right. don't have to start at the book at the beginning. You can explore the book. Go through it. Right. Understand what the chapters are. Something that blew my mind is that if you gave an artist an infinite canvas, it would be extremely difficult for them to produce painting. Whereas as mm. soon as you put a frame around the canvas, they can start thinking about what will I paint and what will I create? Mm. When we read a book, sometimes we enter into a book with no knowledge of what the book is about, just that we should read it. Mm. Whereas if you go into a book knowing what the thread of the book is about, maybe reading the opening paragraph of each chapter, seeing what the flow and the narrative is about, suddenly you have a sense of what the argument is. And then you can go and you can find the nuggets. Of course, we're kind of talking about self-help books here. It's different to if you're going down the literary path of reading right. just for pleasure. But this suddenly makes it uh, very malleable. Does that kind of make sense and answer your yeah. question about how it starts to make you approach reading differently? Yes, it, I, I think it does. And one of the things I, I kind of want to uh, draw a correlation between sports here and, and ask you if, is, if this is kind of what you're saying, especially when it comes to us learning once and never learning again, but improving. So like, let's take basketball, for example. Let's say someone learns how to shoot a jump shot at, I don't know, six years old but the jump shot they learn how to shoot is not the jump shot that's used by pros it's a jump shot that's extremely flawed and so over the course of time they may get better at that flawed jump shot but there comes a point in time in their life where they may meet someone with extreme knowledge that could help them play college ball that says hey look you're actually shooting wrong let me show you a different way to shoot the ball and they now learn a different jump shot in which this is them actually learning new patterns because as you put it you said with reading you know, we're just going based off old patterns. So in this case, there would be someone of extreme knowledge coming into the this individual's life and saying, hey, you've actually been shooting this jump shot wrong the whole, the whole time. You've gotten better at it, but you've been shooting it wrong the whole time. This is actually how you should shoot a jump shot. And then as a result, they can improve on that and get better. Is that kind of what you're saying here? Is that is that like the, the what you're saying? Yeah, it's, it's a great analogy because if you think about it, like that jump shot that you've taken with you your whole life, you never really thought about the technique. You right. just started shooting the ball. Right, and right. then somebody brings this range of observation about the where your hand is placed, where you place your hand on the ball, the positioning mm. of your hips, of your feet, of your knees. Right, right, right. Now it's like this overwhelming sensation of all this information, which was not available to you before because you had no awareness of it. Mm. So that's what like approaching, and there's so many skills which are available to us. The, the journey that's taken me today was to enter into the skill of focus, was to mm. understand focus and, and understand our attention but my point of entry into this path was understanding reading because reading is a very interesting cognitive skill it needs to be developed it need and right. to develop it you need to bring awareness to it. you need to be, bring awareness to all the different elements but right. we don't usually do that we just think about reading that's it mm -hmm. we just see it as one thing mm -hmm. okay so let me ask you 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 already gave us the example that um we tend to believe we have to pick up a book and read it front to back and perhaps it's like, what if we just picked it up and read what's useful to us? So that's um, th that is a technique I actually use that has been very beneficial. Do you mind sharing with us, you know, one more technique for someone listening right now that they may identify as a bad reader or not an effective reader or, you know, fill in the blank, whatever they're saying. Right. Um, give us a tip or a tactic or something that you learned in that course or that you've developed over time that could make someone become a better reader. Absolutely. So there's kind of deeper things which I'm not going to go into because right. we won't be able to extract that application in right. this way. So I'll, I'll try and give things which can be applied and understood in this sense. Okay. Let's talk about focusing and reading. For a lot of people, they drift off in their attention when they read. They'll pick up a book, but then their attention will slide at some stage and they mm. won't get to progress with it. So it's a really simple approach 
is to decide the point of completion when you start reading. So when we open up a YouTube video or we watch a movie, we can see that there's an hour and 50 minutes or in the movie, or maybe there's four and a half minutes in the video. When we read, we often pick it up with no sense of when we're going to finish. Mm -hmm. So it makes it very easy for any external distractions take our attention away because there's nothing that it's battling against. Mm. So when you're reading, a very good tactic is to decide, like to look, where's the end of the chapter? Okay, so I'm on page 65 and the chapter finishes at page 83. I'm going to stick it out until then. Now on the journey, there will be times where you'll think, oh, this isn't so interesting. I'm going to put it down. But you'll see, okay, there's only four pages left. I'm going to go to the end. Mm. So know when you're going to finish when you start and that's a really helpful thing to implement for you to for you to stick it out mm. um an, another thing which is which is quite helpful if you're if you're reading on the so the other thing which is massively important is to be a very active reader is to not simply be passive so the way that we the way that we learn if we think about it from an, a visual perspective is like a game of tetris where you've got this foundational layer of all these shapes and you've got new shapes coming in, but you have to manipulate the shape to fit into the layer that's at the bottom. Right. If it just lands in the way it is, you're going to lose the game very quickly. The way that you sustain the game is by manipulating the shape. Mm. And the same is true when you read. You have to manipulate the information to make it relevant to you. So Mm. whether you're reading on a Kindle or in a book, find a way that it's relevant to you in your world. Disagree, Mm. agree, argue. And then when you take notes, something that I do is I use symbols. So it means that it's very helpful for me to go back through a book afterwards. So at the end of a chapter, I go back and I find all the G's. That's what I have to Google. Mm. I, 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 I list all the Q's. Those are the quotes that I want to keep. The mm. really interesting information has three X's beside it. The kind of inter- interesting information is two X's. Relevant information is one X. So when I go back through the book, there's a lot of words in the margins, but it's very easy for my brain to pinpoint what is relevant and what is necessary and what is worth what. So I have these symbols and that makes it and that by writing and engaging in such a way, you are manipulating the shape like we spoke about in the game of Tetris and you're adding it. You're connecting it to what you already know. And that's what learning is about. It's it's adding new knowledge to your existing knowledge. It's mm-hmm. not just, it's not starting from nowhere. So maybe those are two things just as a, a shift in mindset for, for people to consider. Definitely. And thank you for sharing. I'm um, sure that that would be very beneficial. I'm actually going to use the um, symbols technique that you just shared here. And I'm I'm hoping some of my listeners uh, make use of this as, as they're reading books to, you know, help them in their entrepreneurial journey and, and personal development. So at Hara, you focus on helping your clients develop the whole human and not just the version of them at work. How does your organization achieve these results? Like, how do y'all go about um, helping your clients do that? So in a lot of organizations, there is a sense that to help people do more and be better, what they need is is more motivation okay. and that motivation will will push them forward and I've been hired to come in as a keynote speaker and oftentimes the request is we just want to get them drummed up for the next for the next <laughs> quarter you know let's let's get let's get a bit of let's get them excited let's right. get them excited right people don't need any any excitement they don't need more motivation i've right. seen people are highly motivated individuals right. what they need is more structure um in the world that we live in today there is a there's an absence. It's very difficult because our world feels like it's ever changing and very fluid and, and whatever kind of structure and foundations we had beneath us are shifting and changing all the time. So in organizations, there is a great emphasis on developing your work related skills. So these are, you know, how to use specific tools, uh, specific techniques related to specific products. But what I came to understand is that there are these foundational skills which are success multipliers for everything. So my point of entry into this was into reading and into memory. But then I came to explore what is focus? What is this capacity to focus? Because it was the it was the thing that I saw nowhere in all of the places that I went to. Everywhere I went, I saw fractured minds. I saw people that wanted something but couldn't seem to organize themselves to get it. 
Mm. And that's because the way that you live shapes the way that you work. Mm. Focus is not a single skill. It's an outcome of how you approach your life. The way that you orient your life and organize your life is what allows you to bring focus into Mm. your work when you wish. There's not a present and constant state of focus, but it's that we can call on it when we need. So when we say that we develop the whole human, what we're really speaking about here is that the organization can develop the work-related skills. Mm. We'll come in and we'll develop the foundational skills which feed those work-related skills. Mm. Your capacity to read, your capacity to hold and process information, your capacity to focus. And the way that we do that is by fundamentally bringing structure into people's lives. And we can talk how we do that. Um, and, and then teaching them about these cognitive skills to develop them. So so that's kind of the, the approach that we take and and it seems to be working. Mm, it, it, it sounds like it is. So let, let's say you let's say you enter into a, a um, you know, a client relationship or it's just someone that you're about to start doing this work with. Right. What would be kind of what would be the first steps you would take to introducing organization into their life? So we have a 45-day program, uh, the Momentum Mind program. And what we have come to discover is that, well, what we've done is we've approached the day from three different segments. So your evening, your morning, and your work. And over those 45 days, they're broken up into three sections. So the first two weeks are shaped around your evening. The middle two weeks are shaped around your morning, the beginning of your day, and then uh, the final two weeks are shaped around your work, which is both you, but also how you establish dynamics with others. Right. So for a lot of people, and I, I mean, I was in this boat myself uh, when I started my first business. I I was so focused on the activity that I wanted to bring forth. I wasn't mm-hmm. thinking about the processes in how I approached my life. So mm-hmm. I really wasn't that focused and I was wasting a lot of time and I was also making a lot of um, silly decisions, uh, quite reactive decisions when I started out. And that was because I was exhausted. I was sleep deprived. Mm-hmm. I wasn't acknowledging that. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't I didn't I, I, I was I was feeding into the mantra that, you know, sleep is for the week. And, yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. And, and we see that in, in a lot of in a lot of circumstances. Uh, there's a very interesting study that was done um, and it listed that. I think it was somewhere around the region of 42 percent of business leaders get less than six hours sleep per night. And mm-hmm. the average uh, sleep duration is about six, six point six hours. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's it's a very common thing. And I think it's very interesting in the world of business that there's so many points of reference and metaphor of the world of sports. Right. And we look to the world of sports as a way to, once again, drum up motivation and drive. Right. But what we fail to recognize are the processes which are underneath the way that the sports system operates, which is that rest and recovery is just as important as intensity. And in business, there's just persistent intensity. And often there's very little space to be given to rest and recovery. It's changing. It's been changing in the last few years. But in the corporate environment, when there's these sales meetings, I mean, people are boozing until 12, 1 in the morning, and then they're expected to be fresh as a daisy for the first presentation at 7 a.m. I I see the people. I mean, they're they're like four cups of coffee in at 1 p.m. There's no sense of of really how people are healthy and well-functioning. And then those who are hungover and struggling are saying, look at Andy and Mary over there. Like, they seem so fresh, and they can always be the last one at the bar and wake up, and it doesn't bother them. What's wrong with me? I should be better mm. at drinking and not sleeping and being focused. So mm. they 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 pick up on the wrong bit of feedback. They think that okay. their issue is that they can't drink and stay up late and still be high-performing, rather than recognizing that their whole approach to how they live their life is, 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 is setting mm. them off track. Mm. That makes sense. So based on your program, it sounds like you you help people organize their evenings first and, and I'd imagine so that way they could wake up prepared for the next day and, and execute a extremely productive morning, which you move to, you know, helping people organize their mornings and then you you move after that to their work. What what has been some common misconceptions that you've noticed about um you know, focus when it comes to the type of 
clients that you work with? What has been some common misconceptions that you've noticed about energy and attention? I guess what I'm asking, and what do you believe people should believe instead? I have to multitask because I just don't have the time to do anything else. So that's mm. that's one thing that I hear. You know, yeah. I, what makes I that a common misconception? What, what makes that a misconception? You would say because it's the sense. So it's the sense that time is condensed, and the only way to win back my time is to do everything at once. Mm. And what this what this creates is that we're no longer living in the time of multitasking. We're living in the time of what's been coined continuous partial attention. So mm -hmm. that means that I am continuously partially attending to everything at once. Mm -hmm. So I am never actually, I never am clear of what the actual objective is at any time because the objective becomes check everything all the time. So while I'm trying to actually write something that needs to be done, I'm also checking my email and the sports and the news and my phone and social media, anything that comes in. Right. And then I'm flicking back and forth all the time. So what it becomes is, and, and the other side of this, which I think is very interesting, Joe, is that especially as we've come to working from home, the distinction between roles. So the roles that we occupy where you might be uh, at work and then you might be a friend and then you might be a partner to somebody and a sports fan and interested in other pursuits in your life. It's, it's much easier if they are distinguished in time and space that I do them in different moments. But when they mm -hmm. all collapse into the one space where while you're working, you're also checking out your sports team and you're checking out the news and you're planning a friend's birthday, it fragments and fractures your attention completely. And when you're not aware of this, you think then you have to multitask to get everything done. But it's actually that you created the environment to mm. need to constantly multitask. Mm. And what happens from this is there is no space. So when you go to the toilet, you take your phone with you. You're just checking on social media. There is not a moment where there's a bit of space to actually reflect on how am I, where am I? placing my attention and how am I using my time? Instead, mm. there's just this race to do more so that I can reclaim my time. But in fact, everything that you're doing is giving your time and your attention away. You have no mm. sense of how to own it. So that's that's one of the core misconceptions. And maybe if I could just add a second one that comes in with that is, is this is maybe less evident to people. They, they don't see it in themselves. It's an unconscious pattern, but they, it's very important to, it's difficult, but it's important to become aware of where you derive your sense of value from. Mm. And for a lot of both entrepreneurs uh, and people in corporate environments, I mean, it runs the same, is it can be difficult to identify where the key areas are where you make an impact in the work that you do and where the impact needs to be made. And the less clear you become on that, the more occupied you become by just being active and busy because mm. being active and being busy and being needed by others becomes the signal of your value becomes the signal of your impact, but you're trading impact for activity and busy work. And when you're not aware of that and you can't clearly identify where you make an impact, suddenly you design a life mm. to be distracted. You design a life that's overwhelming. And that's one thing that we see in a lot of people that we need to get to the root of where they derive their value from, because mm -hmm. if your value is from being available and being needed, well, that's how you'll set up your life. And it's very right. easy to do that nowadays. Right. So what, what, what would you say that people should do instead to overcome those misconceptions that you've shared with us? What do you believe they should do instead? What do you believe they should believe um, if someone is is dealing with those misconceptions, they're like, I don't, I personally don't want to be this way. I would love to not be the person that has a work environment that you know I've created that's just full of distractions, right? So, what can I believe and do instead? So, a really basic one, but far more challenging than it sounds, is is to not sleep with your phone in your room. And the reason why that's important is because. That is a very important time to offer yourself space. So for a lot of people, their phone is their alarm clock. And I think it's a very interesting question to ask yourself, when did you choose that your phone would become your alarm clock? Typically, you didn't. It just entered in there because it was convenient. And that mm -hmm. is the trap of convenience. It's convenient, 
But in it being convenient, it stole any space from you. Because mm. anytime you have a moment's thought, anytime you have a moment's agitation, you roll over, you pick up your phone and you scroll. Mm. And the long-term consequence of that is that you become less and less able to handle your own inner state. So your phone becomes the stimulant and the pacifier. It becomes the thing that you turn to as your anchor, as your therapist. Yeah. And that's a really important thing. So separating and trying to extend the length of time in the evening that you're away from your phone and any screens is very helpful because in that you'll find that there's an absence. There is, there is, there's a void. What do you do with that void? Well, mm -hmm. you get to observe yourself. You don't get to observe yourself if your attention is so taken by continuous partial attention, checking in on right. everything, but not really being aware of anything. Right. So that space is a breakthrough, a massive breakthrough. And if you can extend that for a little while in the morning, it's also a massive breakthrough. Because if the first thing that you look at when you wake up is your phone and you're responding to all of the needs and demands placed upon you, it inserts a state of reactivity. It inserts a state of stress and it narrows your capacity to really think about how you wish to live and what's important. So it leads to the next thing that we spoke about, which is that it reduces your capacity to even see where you make an impact because the only thing that you can think about is how do I respond and take care of this right away? And you can start to see how that just creates a cycle. So right. almost a way of breaking that cycle is literally by placing your phone out of your room. And mm. I know it sounds like a very basic uh, uh, task, but it, it should be a principle. It should be an act. And it's, it's, it's a way of treating yourself with great respect mm. to create that space. And you would be amazed what would arise within that space. And, and there will be agitation. It doesn't mean that by leaving your phone out of your room, you'll feel just liberated. No, you'll find yourself wanting it. You'll find yourself needing it. And that's all the reason why it shouldn't be there because mm. you've become addicted to it. It has become your stimulant and your pacifier. And mm. you need to be the one who can take control of your inner state rather mm. than depending on your phone to get your, to, get, to calm you down and to get you amped up. Mm. You know, that that's a very interesting take, but I have to say that I, I agree with it. I remember when I was um, high school, there was a summer camp that we would go to. And um, this summer camp, that we would go to, they would take our phones and there was like no TV the whole week. And my very first time going, number one, I almost didn't go because they said they were going to take my phone. Um, but, <laughs> but, 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 you know, then I was persuaded to go and, and I could definitely say the first 48 hours, the first three days or so, it's almost like I didn't really, it was very different. I didn't really know how to think. I didn't really know how to feel. And about day four, it's like I completely forgot that phones and television even really existed. And I know that might sound, you know, much, but it was true. You know, by that point, it was, it was, I had accepted that like, this is, this is the time that I won't have my, my phone and, and my um, television. And so I think just kind of to what you're saying, us being able to create that space as you're putting it in our daily lives can be very beneficial. Um, and, and in a sense, how I also see it is I think that, there's a degree of um, mental toughness that could be observed from putting your phone in a different room and and resisting the urge from, you know, having to pick up your phone in the moments where you just feel like you just have to have it because you know you're missing out on something, right? So um, very interesting take. I, I want to say thank you for sharing that. And can I, can I just say, just to extend that show, is that it, it, it's not about... It's not about focusing on not looking at your phone. Mm. It's it's about because if we if we think about like the the dopamine desire circuit and the dopamine control circuit, so the dopamine desire circuit is is constantly being activated uh, on the basis of what we want and what right. we what we don't have and what we would like to have. So this pursuit of of everything which is beyond us, but we don't have, and and we know that sensation that you know we're in a restaurant and we're waiting for our food and somebody else's food comes down and you're like oh it looks so good I just can't wait for my food to arrive you know that's the only thing you can think about you nearly jump right. over and steal that person's steal that person's lunch and and that's when that's kicked in you know and and, and that has been engineered to a T by apps uh, and by uh, digital devices and by um 
processed food companies so that mm. this dopamine desire circuit is triggered and that we want more and need more of it. And, and what that does is it starts to narrow our sense that we can only get the sense of pleasure from that. So mm. if you are, if that is activated and if you are thinking no don't look at your phone don't look at your phone keep it away if you keep going with that approach you'll eventually break and and it, mm. it will be hard to sustain this new way of living the the other the way to deal with it is to tap into your dopamine control circuit so this is the part of us which allows us to really move forward and to progress this is what has allowed us as a species to be so progressive and creative and innovative it's been the dopamine the dopamine desire circuit has created a lot of things, but the dopamine control circuit is what has really led to innovations and, and creations. Maybe not even so much nowadays. If you think about it, a lot of the things that we build and we create are based around our pleasures. So probably we're more and more trapped in the dopamine desire circuit. But let me come back to the point at hand. The dopamine control circuit is is more connected to the future that you have in mind, the person that you are becoming, the goal that you want to aspire to, the type of life that you want to create. And this is what we want to hold in mind. This is what will uh, suppress and override the dopamine desire circuit. So if you are going to make the decision to not have your phone in your room, it's not about focusing on not having your phone in your room. It's about shifting your attention to who you are and how you wish to live. And if you're finding that you aren't able to focus, that you are relating to what I spoke about and needing to multi or multitasking a lot or feeling like you don't have a lot of mental clarity, then become conscious and start to think about what would life look like if you had those things and, and mm -hmm. who could you be with those things? And bring your attention and emphasis on that. And then moving your phone out of the room is a is a is a sign of moving towards that person. And mm. focusing on that will allow you to sustain the habit rather than just thinking about keeping the phone out of the room. Mm. Great tip. Thank you for sharing. Um, so shifting gears here, one of the things my listeners love to learn about is how other successful entrepreneurs are acquiring clients for their services. When it comes to how you get clients for your business. What has been working for you here post COVID? Like how, how are you currently getting clients? Yeah, it's an, it's an interesting conversation. It's, you know, something we tapped into just a little bit earlier when we were chatting and uh, I've been, it's been both a blessing and a curse um, on my end where the business has grown by word of mouth very well over the last two years within the financial services industry. And as a consequence, our focus has mainly been on, on taking care of those clients and learning as much mm -hmm. as we can about them. So it's actually a part of the business which I want to bring more emphasis and more attention to in, in building a more effective, I would say, process and mm -hmm. hopefully creating somewhat of a machine um, in how that's done. But what has been effective for us in growing the business and still continues to be is sharing thought leadership and, and that leading to speaking opportunities. So mm -hmm. for, for us, it's, it's about getting me in the room to speak to a group of leaders or to speak to a team. And, and that's what begins the relationship. Once they get a, mm -hmm. there's a presentation I typically give on the supply and demand of your attention. And the reason why I give that presentation is because once again, most of our clients are in the financial world, so they they have a clear sense of of the constraints and the scarcity of time and money as resources, but they don't think about their attention in the same way. And I believe it's it's the most important resource that leads to the quality of their time and the quantity of the money that they can bring in. Mm -hmm. So we try and present this to them, and and that opens up to programs and workshops and consulting work that comes from it. So that's mm -hmm. kind of where our focus is. That's the yeah. lead generation process, I would say. Yeah, it sounds like you've you've been very um, focused on delivering really great work, which is a, a great strategy for getting referrals and continuing to get. Um, client. So if, if we were to kind of like, you know, if you were to look at the younger version of yourself, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, what would what would you say are some things, whether they're principles, whether they're practices, you know, um, maybe I don't know the way that you onboard a client or the way that you communicate with your clients or what, what would you say are some things that have um, played a role in delivering the type of work that would get your clients to refer others because I'm, you know, I've met a lot of entrepreneurs who like to believe 
I'm doing great work and my clients are not referring clients to me. Right. And so yeah. in, in your experience, what, what would you say have been some of the things that have actually contributed in how you deliver your services that has influenced your clients to refer business to you? There's a lot of interesting things to say on that show. Um, I have a few things that I can say about my own path. And I'll also share something about a conversation I had with a friend who, who struggled with this also quite recently. So at the beginning, I was I was trying to communicate my message across many platforms. I was trying to be present on Facebook and on LinkedIn. And uh, I don't think I think I, I didn't have Instagram anymore, so I wasn't on that. But I, I recognized that I hadn't really accomplished much. And I was trying to tell everybody about what I could do. Mm. And it was taking up more of my energy um, than it should have. And I was not putting enough attention and energy into the courses. So mm. I, I just started making as many courses as I could. I started making courses on speed reading, on focus, on lots of different mm. things. And I started offering it to people for like friends and people that I knew and people who I thought might be interested in it for like $50. Mm. And then I would try and connect with them and have a chat. And they'd say, you know, I, I put a monetary figure there so that they'd have a sense of respect for the product and engaging right. with it. I, I knew that I wasn't really leading too much in terms of my you know, financial uh, security of the business. But it was a great teaching because yeah. they would say, you know, that first module, it was a little bit off. But that second module, wow, that really connected mm. with me. And I'd like to learn more about that. So then I went deeper and deeper. And then this started to give me a sense of it started to give me feedback on what the general public needed. So then um, I was quite fortuitous in uh, somebody that I knew who explained how this would be so helpful for mm. wholesalers in the financial insurance industry. And that allowed me to craft my message to the specific needs of that industry and why they needed it. But at that stage, I had been putting a lot of effort and emphasis on mm. how I designed courses and what resonated with people and what didn't. So by the time I actually got to deliver it with our first client, Lincoln Financial, the course and the program itself was in a good enough place that it had um, a, a strong impact and that just set off the trail. Hold that thought right there. Cause I, so thank you for sharing this. Cause I think this is something that, you know, startup entrepreneurs or aspiring entrepreneurs need to like really hear. So if I'm hearing you correctly at the beginning, you, um, you were trying to tell your message, use platforms, get your story out into the world, reach, you know, grow audience. And, and you seem to have been doing that, but you weren't necessarily focused on the product, which were the courses. And then you get to a point where you make this decision that I need to put a lot of time into developing courses. Doesn't matter if you're not the world's greatest expert on whatever it is you're designing the course on, you put in the time and effort to, to design courses. And I'm sure in the, in the interim, you was also learning as you go, right? From reading and, and simply yeah. trial and error. And to get the feedback, you offered the course at a extremely reasonable price from from what you're saying 50 bucks i mean that's that's extremely reasonable so you offer the course for for 50 and you have friends, family yeah. you have people right that that are giving you feedback and then someone you meet one person that comes along and they say hey this would be really great for this audience and then so you then take everything that you've done and then you tailor that product and your message your marketing etc to fit that audience. And then sooner or later, you're landing um, one of your first big clients and the product is actually a good product by that time. Did I get that right? Yeah, spot on. Yeah, you nailed it. Um, and yeah, that was the best That was the best thing I did was, was yeah. to make that move. Because you know what a big thing is, Joe, is that it gave me confidence. It right. gave me confidence because I already knew that it worked. Mm. And when you have that sense of confidence because you've seen how it resonated and impacted the people, and you know, there's one thing about about delivering information. Right. Uh, that's that that is a, a skill in and of itself. But there's another thing about uh, making it practical enough so that it can be implemented and integrated into people's lives, and, right. and offering frame. You know, it's literally creating a framework. Right. So, so I, I was able to start establishing a framework. I didn't have it fully formed by the time I got my first client, but it was right. it was on its way. Mm -hmm. And I, I stopped all. So, I, you know, I'm only starting now, um, two and a half, three years later to actually start communicating what we've been doing, because 
I just put no outward energy into telling the public what was going on because mm. all of our growth came through word of mouth. Mm. And that's, that's because I focused my attention solely on that. And, and if I could just share just as a contrast to a conversation I had with a friend, he had a framework that he came up with. Um, and it was, it was around, he, he had a lot of experience in, uh, data analysis and operating systems. He came from an engineering background and he was trying to bring this to entrepreneurs. So he had, he had a framework of how to organize their business and how to streamline it, uh, using different tools. And he wasn't getting word of mouth feedback. And when we spoke about it, we spoke about it a few months ago and I also hired him and I was able to explain to him the reason why he wasn't getting word of mouth is because he was so focused on pushing his framework that mm. he hadn't been spending enough time of actually listening to mm. how it was implemented and applied. So he had mm. this very broad and elaborate concept, which he thought mm. this is the bee's knees. But right. he didn't give enough time to thinking like, where was it relevant for you? And he could have broken it up into lots of little chunks and segments because for a small business, you just need what you need right now. Right. You don't need to be thinking about what you're going to need 6, 12, 18 months away from. You don't have the capacity to think about that. There's right. so many things that you're dealing with. And he was missing that because he was pitching the whole framework and he wasn't giving people specific elements because mm. he wasn't listening. Mm. Um, so that, that's a, that's also a very important part is, is just testing things and getting feedback. Mm, I completely agree with that. And and I, I swear by that as well. You need you need to test, you need to get feedback and implement um, the feedback that's necessary. So I, we're going to get out, get out of here in a little bit, but I, I wanted to, one of the things I wanted to also point out, I'm really fast because I, I feel like this is something that should be pointed out. I don't want it to go um, missed. You mentioned that you had put a price on your product, even though you knew that it wasn't, you know, the best product, but you did it so that way, those who would take the product would at least take it seriously. I, I wanted to point how serious I think that is. Like, I think that's a, that's a very important um, lesson for any entrepreneur. Like I, I come from the school of thought that I can give anybody a free call for the sake of like getting to know you learn what your needs are, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but when it comes to my products, my programs and my services, even if I'm in your one extremely early days, uh, some there has to be a price paid for it, even no matter how flawed the product is. Because when we really think about it, no matter how much of an expert an individual is, products are still flawed. I mean, cars is probably one of the most um probably one of the products that has evolved the most over, over the course of time. And they're still flawed. No matter how new you buy a vehicle, they're still flawed. And you're mm -hmm. and people are going to pay tens of thousands of dollars, if not hundreds of thousands for a flawed car. So I, I say that to, you know, just to point out, I think that's very um, important. And I, I, I think that any entrepreneur starting out or pivoting um, never be in a place where you just feel like you have to give your products, your programs and services away for free. Um, putting a price on it to at least pe get people to take it seriously in the process of taking it and giving feedback is is essential. So thank you for sharing that. Um, now, one of the things that I wanted to kind of go back to that you mentioned earlier, kind of from like a, a sales, not not even a sales coaching session here, but more so like I, I want, I want um, those who are listening who, you know, have problems with their sales calls to get some sort of insight from you based on a comment you made earlier. So you mentioned that sometimes you'll get a call and they say, you know, we just want to motivate them. We just want to get them drummed up. And, you know, you went on to explain how that's not really all that's needed. Right. So yeah. my question to you and answer this, how, however you would like to answer it. My question to you is when you know, that that is not the only thing that their team needs from your keynote or from your services. How do you respond to that request and continue moving the deal forward? If you're going to move it forward, do you respond with like, yes, you're paying me. I'll just be the motivator guy. Or do you respond with, you know, okay, but let's go deeper. What else? Right? Like how, how do you, you know, answer that request and, and keep the deal moving forward? Yeah, it's it's um it's probably an answer that I could 
I could give many responses to because I've approached it differently at different stages. And I think, I think to be honest with you, Joe, the reasons why I've done it at different stages, depending on how aware I was of myself. Mm. So, you know, there was, there was a, a case last year towards the end of last year for a leadership conference. And I was going to be speaking one day and there was another keynote speaker the day before. And, um, the lady who was, uh, the, the kind of the orchestrator, she was, she wasn't necessarily the organizer, but she was the senior leader of the group. She started really, I became a little bit tense because she was really positioning how she wanted, what she wanted the message to be brought across. And mm-hmm. I, 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 it was a great lesson because in it, I responded in pushing back straight away. Mm-hmm. Um, to double down on my value and, and what I can contribute. And it was only after that initial call, because we had a follow-up call and a follow-up call and planning, right. I realized that was wrong of me, you know, because mm. they were hiring me, they were interested. So it was my role to hear her mm. and then to slip below what she was actually saying and say, okay, well, let's, Let's dig into what your real intention is here for what this what this event is all about. Right. Because I didn't necessarily need to speak to the points that she laid out. They were just being presented so that she was expressing what the purpose of this conference was. Right. Whereas I initially didn't even allow myself to ask her what the purpose of the conference was. I just pushed back and said, this is what I do. And it's been very positive and it's been very impactful. Mm-hmm. So that's just a scenario of where... Mm-hmm. Um, the importance of really sitting back and absorbing and and being very curious to understand whatever the whatever the energy or the mood is, be it very confrontational or be it very open or be it quite closed. I found that the most important thing is to really sit back and to absorb and mm-hmm. to question and to probe and to make sure you have a very clear understanding of where they stand both as an individual, but where they stand within the intention and the objective of the organization or the team or the event mm. or the period of the year. And, and that allows you to have very uh, uh, impactful and meaningful conversations. Because if you don't do that, you end up like two ships in the night. They're yeah. saying one thing, you're saying another, and you're trying to push your agenda, they're trying to push theirs. Mm. So... Uh, does that does that speak to, that, to what you were exploring? Yeah. No, that 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 definitely does. And thank you for sharing there. Um, because at the end of the day, I think the valuable lesson is really gauging what your clients' needs are and um assessing if you're a mutual fit. Because I mean, you know, uh, yeah, I I think you 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 beautifully, you know, um answered the question. So uh, my final question for you today is if there was a principle or practice today that we didn't get to cover and you would like to share, what would it be? Hmm. Something I'm thinking about a lot lately is the the trap of convenience. Um, you got to be very careful about how convenient things can start to uh, expand in your life without really seeing the unintended consequences so mm. um an example that we spoke about you know earlier was was the alarm clock it, it, it enters in because of convenience but it expands and it ends up taking space mm. um i'm conscious of chat gpt you know it's a very useful tool and i use it yeah. but you want to be so careful around the boundaries of how you use it because it can start to erode uh, your own cognitive faculties because the real the only thing that you have in a sense of where you kind of contribute your sense of mastery it's not just about the value that you give to others but the sense of fulfillment from yourself is thinking deeply and and, and probing and expanding the boundaries of your mind and I think mm. that is something that I hope I will do for my whole life this mm. work that I'm doing is just a conduit for that I, mm. I, I I hope that I'm always on that path of finding myself in frontiers where I feel like I know nothing I'm in a movement practice at the moment practicing in a school that is fr- from the Edo Portal method and I feel like a dummy most days of the week when I show up because I'm I'm practicing movements that I have no capacity to engage mm-hmm. in but I feel like my brain is growing every day I leave mm-hmm. and I just say that just as a principle just for your own sense of self and well-being be very careful about the trap of convenience 
be very careful about how you arrange things in your life, such as, you know, really small things, having the TV in the kitchen, uh, having the TV in your bedroom, having your phone in your bedside locker, having an Apple watch, obviously notifications and things like that. Make things inconvenient and, and make them inconvenient so that the most important things are convenient, uh, mm. such as, you know, don't have your phone resting on the table, uh, leave it in, leave it in the, leave it in your jacket pocket or take it away, put it in your bag. If you're sitting down and having a meal with somebody, don't have a close by because it being there and being convenient when that dead air arises, it means that your habit, your habitual pattern is just going to be to turn to that as an outlet, a, a, mm. a way to get away. But, but a great way to develop your capacity to actually be present and to converse with people is to sit there and stand in front of them, even when it feels like the conversation has died, mm. because that's when beautiful moments arise in the conversation. That's when something blossoms and something spontaneous. So that's a principle. It's a principle for life that I consider is, is just be aware of the trap of convenience. You know, if something is coming into your life because it is convenient, there are also unintended consequences and be, be conscious and aware of that. Mm. Thank you for sharing. Um, Patrick, if you don't mind, can you share with my listeners where they can connect with you? Yeah, absolutely. So you can connect with me on LinkedIn. If you search for Patrick McAndrew, you should hopefully see uh, me there. Um, <laughs> I'll be, also, I will be including the link in the show notes as well. Right. Um, my personal website is patrickmcandrew.co. Uh, M-C-A-N-D-R-E-W and then our business website is hara.co that's H-A-R-A dot C-O so those are kind of the three platforms um, I've also recently launched a Substack, so that's where I'm publishing long form articles uh, on different topics and that is uh, theinnerlandscape.substack.com so that's the the inner landscape and, and those are both written articles and available in audio format and that's where I'm kind of clarifying my thoughts and thinking aloud about technology and our, our lives and, and our work and uh, how that relationship is all unfolding together. So um, please connect and reach out and, and share any things that resonated with you. I, I think it's so helpful to uh, continue the conversation. So connect to me on LinkedIn and, and I'd love to, to hear from you there. Completely agree. And I, I will be including all of your links in the show notes as well. Um, to my listeners, I hope you take something from this interview and implement it in your daily path. Until next time, have a blessed day. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Daily Path Podcast. If you would like to launch your own podcast show to expand your reach, grow your network, and sign more premium clients for your business, visit dailypathacademy.com to learn how we can help you launch an impactful podcast that changes lives around the world and acquires high-ticket clients for your business. That's dailypathacademy.com.